Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Batman. <laughs> okay, or yeah, I'm Forrest. <laughs> and this is the Crosscut, a podcast that contextualizes the news of the day with the story, themes, and motifs of a treasured or trash piece of cinema. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and today we're doing Batman Returns, Yay! which is treasured and a little bit sort of kind of trashy, but all but in the best ways possible. I mean, it's trashy insofar as if you are Martin Scorsese and you say that all comic book films are trash. Sure. I think, yeah. Okay. That's right. a little overblown. I think he just means like the, the current ones. I think he probably has an appreciation for Tim Burton. And this is the most Burton-y Batman of all, which we'll get into. The most Burton-y of the two. Th- yeah, that's right. But yeah, for sure. Yes. I'm excited to talk about this. Yes, indeed. I uh, This is my favorite of the of the Burton's Batman's. We'll get into why as we get through the episode, but we're going to use it in an interesting way to talk about these people who have just a bunch of money and have decided to plow it into the search for missing persons Mm. and for criminals based off of DNA evidence left behind at the scene. Detectives. They are vigilantes who use your genetic material to find the bad guys. We hope the bad guys. <laughs> they or certainly are, found somebody. Or are they the bad guys? Yeah. What Similar. Is this? Or is society the bad guy? Yeah, there it is. Did we create a bad society? <laughs> we might have. Are we going to play Billie Eilish now? Sure. <laughs> I don't know. Can we afford it? No. Okay. Well, in that case, let's just go with the news of the week. News of the week. A woman who was duct taped to her seat aboard an American Airlines plane after she allegedly attacked the crew and tried to open the door mid-flight faces a whopping $81,950 fine, the largest handed out by the Federal Aviation Administration to date. The fine was actually $89 higher than the previous record as the woman decided to opt in for Comfort Plus. Yeah, she was flying to Charlotte, by the way. So North Carolina, what's up? Well, I'm glad they caught her yeah. before she did anything bad. Also, do those those doors just don't work then, right? I mean, I think they got to her before <laughs> she could pull the lever. I, oh. think, I think people who sit near the exit doors are very, very interested in keeping them closed. <laughs> so. Right, right. I was just thinking maybe the exit doors were like the buttons at a crosswalk. Yeah. They also There is also video of this lady who was t- like tied to the chair with duct tape. Uh-huh. She seems like the kind of person you'd want to tie down with duct tape. She's a, a Did real, she just real lose her mind yep. or is she MAGA or is that not mutually exclusive? Not mutually exclusive. It seems like she's probably MAGA just because of the general vibe I get from her. Mm. But also I think she just like kind of had a like wild panic attack and just like felt like I have to get out of here. So who knows? Okay. Well, it's an expensive panic attack. Yeah. No kidding. According to a new federal report published by the Centers for Disease Control, U.S. cases of sexually transmitted infections such as gonorrhea and syphilis surged to a 30-year high during the 2020 pandemic. When asked for a cause, officials blamed improper social distancing and people wearing condoms halfway off their noses. <laughs> uh, boy, I get that. The swelling from those is a different kind of inflation uh, problem. <laughs> inflammation? Because you're swelling. but Ah, okay. Because we're dealing with inflation in oh, the economy. Oh, so, I gotcha. A little, little joke there. <laughs> A mysterious leaden sarcophagus discovered in the bowels of Paris's Notre Dame Cathedral after it was devastated by a fire 
will soon be opened and its secrets revealed, French archaeologists said on Thursday. Reach for comment, Brendan Fraser said, Nice, I've always wanted to go to Paris. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe some things should just be left unknown. Okay, so here's the thing. When they open the mummy's tomb and Mm -hmm. the sarcophagus, nothing bad ever happens, right? It's when they read the incantations. So scientists, open it up, study it, do what you got to do, but shut your mouths. Don't say anything. Don't read any scripts. I feel like we should just not open the time capsule from the era of pestilence when we have clearly proven as a society that we're not capable of dealing with a worldwide plague. Yeah. (laughs) We just have swarms of locusts eating our crops and all the MAGA heads are just like, what, it's not any worse than the flu. That's right. A father and son team in Britain broke a Guinness World Record by hanging up 10 items of clothing in 56.87 seconds. It has been reported that the family's mother has next challenged them to break the world records in washing dishes and taking out the trash. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. (laughs) This is, I mean, that's how we motivate cash. That is absolutely it. It's like, okay, (laughs) do you think you could beat us in cleaning up your room? Could you do this in 10 seconds? Yeah. (laughs) He's like, I am super fast. I am super strong. Great. Let's put those to the test. (laughs) The fonts Times New Roman, Arial, Veranda, Tahoma, and Helvetica have become unavailable to Russians by the copyright holder's decision. When trying to open a page with the catalog of these fonts from Russian IP addresses, an access ban message will appear. In response, the Russian government has said, hand pointing to the left, black diamond, lambda symbol, white box. It's going to be a lot more ridiculous for them to receive messages from Putin and Papyrus and Comic Sans. <laughs> well, yeah, I was uh, I basically just translated it to wingdings. Yes. <laughs> so, so I don't know if Cyrillic and wingdings have like a common grammatical structure, but apparently uh, they're not copyrighted, though, in America. <laughs> there you go. That's right. Senator Dianne Feinstein came under fire this week after reports from fellow legislators were released, which claimed the 88-year-old senator was no longer fit to serve due to declines in memory and mental acuity. When asked for comment, Feinstein responded, I remain committed to the people of California, tackling the most important challenges of our lifetimes, such as climate change, regulating the tech industry, and figuring out how to work this damn clicker. Yeah, she's got she's to protect all those people from the invasion of the gold rush bandits. She is 88. Yeah. (laughs) Look, no ageism, right? There are plenty of people who are 88 and still functioning on a a high basis, uh, but but perhaps they shouldn't be senators. But are they also able to work a Zoom meeting from beginning to end all by themselves? Yeah, good question. And the the thing is, if you can't use technology or understand technology, you shouldn't be regulating it. In a similar way to is if you can't use vaginas or understand vaginas, you shouldn't be regulating them. That's fair. Uh, Not only that, I think we all knew that she, let's just say, lost a step when she thanked Lindsey Graham for the way he conducted the Amy Coney Barrett hearings. Oh, yeah. Uh, Like, lady, they are shoehorning in a justice for a lifetime appointment in 11 days when the president has already lost his election. What are you doing? She's, she's, yeah, she's lost the plot. Adults in the state of New Jersey will soon be able to enjoy recreational marijuana. A new law legalizing the substance for adults 21 and older will go into effect on April 21st, the day after widely celebrated major weed holiday 420, which means in New Jersey, 421 will now be known as Hot Boxing Day. (laughs) Sure. Uh, Boxing Day jokes. You don't get those often. (laughs) 
Oh, and it's the day after Christmas. Very, very clever. I liked it. How many people know what hotboxing is? Everyone who listens to this podcast. Okay. All right. (laughs) I'm just happy that the wonderful people of New Jersey will finally be able to find marijuana somewhere. (laughs) It's been been a rough lifetime for them to this point. I'm sure they've been absent that that magical plant. I cannot imagine. Oh, wait. Are you being sarcastic? Yes, I was being sarcastic. There's really no place in America right now where if someone is trying to buy marijuana that they can't get it. It's just you maybe get in trouble for it. The only reason that you can't smell weed wafting across the river into Manhattan from Manhattan is because Manhattan also always just smells like weed. That's true. Yes. Yeah. Manhattan has the interesting experience of being a place where you never want to smell twice. So I'll give you an example. Like you're walking down the street and you go past a bakery Mm -hmm. and you get like a really nice whiff of like some freshly baked cookies or bread. And you're like, oh, I want another smell of that. And you turn and give give another little waft in the air. And all of a sudden, oh, urine. Oh, I just smell urine everywhere. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, don't go for back for the second whiff. Just appreciate the first one. Putrid, rotting trash. Yep. On every corner. Mm -hmm. Yep. Oh, New York. And that is the news of the week. News of the week. For our big news story this week, we are talking vigilantes. Ooh, vigil. Not, yeah. So like, like not like vigil uncles. Oh, God. Okay, never mind. Shut it down. <laughs> Podcast over. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I will give you this. They're not normal vigilantes. They are a different kind. These yeah. would be DNA vigilantes. Oh. Now, first, I want to take you back, way, way back into the past to describe where this came from. Okay. All right. We're going How? back. We're going back to the year 2018. Oh, that far back. That's I right. I mean, it does feel like an eternity ago. Yes. So let's do it. Yeah. Black Panther was the number one movie in America. Oh, Black Panther. Yeah. Drake's God's Plan was rocketing up the Billboard charts. The country had no president. What? Yeah. Just there wasn't one. Didn't have a president. In I guess as far as our kids are going to learn. Yes. And the FBI in California. Mm-hmm found the identity of the Golden State Killer. Oh, yeah, that did happen. Yeah. So I don't know how much you knew about that guy. Nothing. He's a bad person, bad guy. He committed 13 murders and dozens of rapes in both Northern and Southern California. In total, he had 87 victims at 53 separate crime scenes from 1975 until 1986. That included nearly 50 rapes that actually could not be charged in 2018 Mm -hmm. because of the statute of limitations, which is... Why is there even a statute of limitations on rape? Yep. Great question. (laughs) Just wanted to throw that out there to make everyone as angry as I am because we're going to get into it. So in 2018, the FBI actually used some new kind of procedure for discovering this particular person. So they had evidence to build out the perpetrator's family tree Mm -hmm. using DNA. So the FBI took DNA that they had from a double murder in Ventura County in 1980. Okay. And they created a fake profile on an online like website that sequences your DNA mm-hmm. uh, to determine potential relatives of the killer, right? So they had the DNA from the, the murderer at the scene of mm-hmm. the crime. They took that DNA, ran it through a publicly open DNA database, 
And they were able to find some distant relatives of this particular character. How did they have that much DNA? Because I feel like when you take those tests, don't you have to spit in a vial for like half an hour? No, it's literally like a cheek swab. Like they can do it with leftover residue on a cigarette. They can do it from blood if you happen to get a cut, you know, on the... Yeah, but like if you're doing it at one of those tests, though, that you mail off. Yeah, it's a small vial you spit into it or you swab your cheek. Yeah, that's it. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. And they're pretty cheap, too. It's like Ancestry.com or 23andMe. Feel free to sponsor this episode. (laughs) You know, they're like 100 bucks. It's not that expensive. Okay. So what they did was they found relatives associated with that DNA strand, basically matching up phenotypes or whatever they do. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not clear on the genetics, but they were able to assemble a family tree and then trace that back up to find this person who is a 72-year-old former police officer, Joseph James D'Angelo. And he was sort of just like a, an old guy living in the middle of nowhere in California, and I think in Ventura, California, and they were able to identify him, and then they matched, they they went into his trash mm-hmm. and found something that had DNA evidence on it, and they matched it with the DNA that they had found from 1980. Like, look, I mean, good for them, I guess, yeah. for catching this guy and actually doing something, but how is any of this legal? Well, we're going to get into the ethics of it, okay. for sure. Yeah. So <laughs> legal is an interesting question. So Companies like uh, 23andMe and Uh Ancestry do not open their databases up to law enforcement. Right. However, you can take those reports that you get from those companies and upload them to something called GED Match. And that is sort of like a low frills, like online place for people to upload their DNA test results and then find other unknown relatives potentially. So if all these people upload that, they can make it private, they can make it public, but the FBI was able to use GED Match to find people who had made it public who were related to the Golden State Killer. GED is a terrible name. Not good, it's that's, not good. That's already a thing. Yes, but and yeah, it's genetic something something, whatever, but yeah, don't. You could have come up with any three letters yeah. and you came up with the one that's also for like the diploma test that they give to high school students who drop out. Correct. Okay, great. Yes. So that is not the crux of our story mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. this was done by the FBI and you can argue the legality of this and I'm sure they would in court. The evidence could be deemed inadmissible because of the way it was collected. Mm-hmm. All of that would go in front of the court. They made the decision that it was, and this guy is now in prison for the rest of his natural life. Okay. What we're talking about today are people who are deciding to do this, who have no association with law enforcement whatsoever. Like bounty hunters? Like bounty hunters, yeah. Or vigilantes. Or the Batman. The Batman. (laughs) So this is based off of an article in the New York Times called The True Crime Obsession Philanthropists Paying to Catch Killers. Mm Mm-hmm. So this is not just one person, although they do profile one person. Her name is Carla Davis. Mm -hmm. And she has been interested in basically funding the use of DNA research methods and gene matching like this. Forensic Mm -hmm. genetic genealogy is what they call it. Mm -hmm. She's been interested in funding that through a number of different companies and, and a number of different police departments. She has given more than, in one year, she's given more than $100,000 to a company called Authram. Now, Authram is run by a guy by the name of David Middleman. Um, he says that basically his product is similar to Kickstarter, but in, in quote, instead of a product, you're getting justice for a family. We're crowdfunding for justice. So 
Do we live in a dystopia yet? Because I think so. I think so we sure do. He's he's he actually is a middleman for justice. That's yes, that, that's right. Todd Mi- middleman. Middle middleman is a middleman. That's right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Uh, she also uses the same GED match company to find DNA matches for various types of, of people. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, she is doing it for missing persons. Not necessarily like I have the DNA of a killer. It's more like we found a body and can't identify it. Mm-hmm. So that's an option. What will happen is. There is a something called a centimorgan, which is a measure of genetic linkage that each relative will share. And if you can match what those similarities are, you might find like a third cousin or, you know, a, a second, you know, uncle. I don't know how, how families work, but you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so if you I can do that, families work. <laughs> yeah, if you can do that, then you can sort of find some of the information about them. Maybe you find like a great grandniece, which is something that she found. Then you can use Ancestry.com to put all that stuff together into a family tree. And the one really crazy part about this is that when you put your stuff up publicly on GED Match or other places, mm-hmm. you might use an anonymous email address. But there's a company called Bin Verified that will specialize in linking phone numbers and anonymous email addresses to actual names and home addresses. Mm-hmm. So pretty terrifying stuff that... A, a, private citizen with enough money and time and resources on their hand Mm -hmm. can just track down an entire family history of somebody who has a little bit of DNA Mm -hmm. or family DNA loaded on the internet. Like I said, she spent over $100,000 on this one company, Authram, to pay for the tests that they would be doing for law enforcement. There are other donors to this as well. So far, uh, donors around the country have given at least a million dollars to this kind of research. There is, uh, boy, just a a group of really dumb people, it seems, yeah. who have done this. They're based out of Las Vegas, and they have called themselves the Vegas Justice League, <laughs> which ties in nicely with our film, I suppose. That's the sequel, though, right? Right. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so they've given Othram $45,000, which solved apparently three murder-rape cases in Las Vegas, including two teenage girls that were killed in 1997 and 1989. And the guy they quoted... His name is Justin Wu, and here's what he had to say about the situation. Uh, we just want to help the police and the community just knock these out. It's not quite Minority Report where you're predicting and stopping, but if you get these people off the street through the <laughs> DNA stuff, it's really helpful. That's a direct quote. That quote, cool. DNA stuff. Guy seems like he knows what he's doing. Cool. Yes. So these are people with access to capital, sure. access to time. And the idea that they can be part of the quote-unquote solution in solving these missing persons case or these long overdue cold case files. What I thought was interesting in the the story from the Times is they did profile Carla Davis a little bit. It says for most of her life, she didn't know who her father was. Mm -hmm. So lost family. Right. Uh, her Her mother was a teenager when she had her, kept the man's identity a secret, and then died when Carla Davis was five years old. Secret identities. Secret identities, dead parents. Starting in... 2013, Mrs. Davis started to look for her family. She got sort of a list of customers who she was genetically related to through 23andMe and Ancestry.com. And from there, again, time and resources, she started tracking down census records, marriage licenses, death records, obituaries, social media accounts of all these people that she was able to decide that she was like, you know, somewhat related to. You said it was her great grand niece or something? Uh, That was for a different case. But yeah, so in, in this case, she basically took three years of her time to find the missing piece, which was some cousin 
had related to her father's brother. So, you know, that it was like on that side of the family. And he turned out to have been like a drag car racer who was not very far from her home, but had died of prostate cancer. And it was the father's brother who took the DNA test to confirm the match. Vigil uncle. <laughs> and not only that, yeah. uh, Carla Davis also had uh, an instance in her life where her 11-year-old daughter at the time had a friend who was abducted and killed. And mm-hmm. they didn't know what had happened to the girl for like three days before mm-hmm. they discovered. And so she has this history, right. this, this deep, dark past of, of things that have happened to her that incentivized her to spend money, her own money, on helping investigations into missing persons and cold case murders. Mm. So with that, we'll get into more of this story. I wanted that to be like a hook for some intrigue. Mm-hmm. But we're talking about a movie that seems to fit surprisingly well with with this topic. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Batman Returns. You told me about this. I know literally nothing about the story and the that we're talking about today. But you said vigilantes and searching for birth records. And I said, well, that's what the penguin does. That's what the penguin does. That's That's right. That's what uh, Bruce Wayne does when he's also looking up the penguin. That's right. In, uh, in Batman Returns. That's right. He is looking at records on newspapers mm-hmm. and reports. He's looking at death records. He's mm-hmm. looking at all of this stuff, the same kind of stuff that uh, that Carla Davis was looking for to find her family. That's right. Yeah. Do you want to do you want to enter the movie and we'll, we'll talk through some more of this real life story as we go through Batman a little? Absolutely. So our movie begins with a look into the dark world of the Cobblepots. That's right. Mansion. We close in on their home in a dark storm. A baby is being born. Women are screaming. <laughs> Lightning is flashing. Pee-wee Herman is there. Pee-wee Herman. Paul Rubens is there for some reason. And this is our intro to the Penguin. This is our intro That's to right. the Penguin. And then we cut... 33 years into the future, and we are in modern day, whatever, modern Gotham Gotham City. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And this is a film that, um, in my memory, was fantastic, and and I I absolutely loved, and I think it held up. Okay, all right. Yeah, yeah. Very dark. Yeah, it is. It's funny. The first Batman was like one of the largest things that like Tim Burton had done at that time. Mm -hmm. And this, and so he was like kind of under control of the studio a little bit. He's like, has a little Tim Burton-y nature, but he's also got just like a little bit like sort of big budget action movie kind of nature to it. Mm -hmm. This one is just all Burton. Oh, and that was absolutely a requirement for him to come back and do a second one. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Okay. Just creative control completely. Complete creative control. You know, he took a couple of notes from the studio. So like the very, very final scene where you see Catwoman staring up at the bat symbol in the sky. That was like a studio note to include that. And so they refilmed that with a, a body double. Oh, sure. Basically during post-production, but his, his big request in order to come back and do the second one was that he basically have complete creative control. So next we move to Gotham and it is modern day and we see a couple different things happening. There is a rally or a tree lighting that's happening in Gotham city, kind of like a Rockefeller square sort of tree lighting that's happening. Um, and then at the same time, we see Selena Kyle, who is working in the Shrek Industries building, 
which what ooh, an ogre. The name structure yeah. did not age well. Yeah. <laughs> um, and she's working. It's for- not me. It's the other Shrek. Oh dear. <laughs> Get out of my swamp. Uh, see, that's now it's going into Arnold Schwarzenegger. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <all right. laughs> um, Selena Kyle is working for billionaire Max Shrek, played by Christopher Walken. That's right. And he with a, and- a fine, fine wig. <laughs> Excellent wig. A lot of really great hair in yeah. this entire film. Yeah. A lot of great makeup. Their eyes, and I think both are just like huge. Yes. And so they both have that very Tim Burton face right. going on. You know, people who just look, look like they could just live in his world because yeah, they have like sure. gaunt, bony features and big eyes and yeah, crazy it, hair. It's interesting. You, you said that uh, Michelle Pfeiffer kind of looked like Helen Bonham Carter, who is also a uh, noted collaborator and I think romantic partner of Tim Burton. So I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it wouldn't be surprising. Like she just, and maybe that's just the look that Tim Burton, that's, that's his look. Right. Yeah. So we see Max Shrek treating her terribly as his secretary. And then he goes down to this tree lighting ceremony and there is a whole huge kerfuffle and um, people come out of the sewers and kidnap Max Shrek and bring him down into the sewers where he's introduced to the penguin for the first time as an adult. Yep. And the penguin basically blackmails him into helping him come out of the sewers. So apparently Shrek has been poisoning Gotham with toxic waste and all this kind of stuff from his plants. He apparently he owns a department store chain, I guess, but is I guess a larger, you know, capitalist of sorts. Because billionaire philanthropist is what we're told. And at the beginning of this movie, we're also shown the idea that he wants to build this power plant, which is something that exists in the first act only and is never discussed again. (laughs) It's just a way to get Bruce Wayne into the offices, I guess. I don't know. And also a reason for him to want Cobblepot to be the mayor. And a reason for him to need to push Selena Kyle out of a window. Right, right. Yeah, it is. But again, it's all set up in Act One. That power plant does not come up again. Right. (laughs) I guess he agrees with the Penguin and says, all right, I'll help you out. Yep. Because he knows what's good for him. And he goes back to his offices and there's Selena Kyle who has remembered that she needs to come back to the office to prepare for the Bruce Wayne meeting in the morning. So before she does that, though, we we do get to see her home. Yeah. A lot of pink. Yep. A lot of pink. Um, very drab. Kind yes. of, you know, dark pink in a way. It's, it's yeah, it Mauve. is. Well, it's basically like uh, depressing in its brightness of palette mm-hmm. just because it's like so monotone. And everything exists. It's very like childlike. It's like a dollhouse. Right. Like a very depressing dollhouse. Yeah. So she comes back to the office, reveals for some reason that she has broken into his secret files. <laughs> yeah. If you hack into files, don't tell people you're hacking into their files. Right. You could have just asked him and he would. And if he said no, then you don't do it. Don't. Right. Yeah. Don't admit that for whatever reason she decides to. And then he pushes her out a window and we have uh, the first death of Selena Kyle in this film. Right. She falls through several cat canopies. Yes. And lands on the ground and then is brought back to life by a bunch of cats licking her face. Yeah, they don't do much explaining of that and that's fine. We don't need it. 
I yeah, I think that they maybe do a little too much explaining in later Catwoman oh, sure. films or or whatever, right? They try and bring it back to Egyptian goddess. Is that what they do in the Holly Berry one? I'm pretty sure it has something to do with that. And then there's this whole mythos around Catwoman mm. and like her like mysticism or whatever. And and yeah, that's a movie we will not be covering. <laughs> I really appreciated that this film does not feel the need to explain a lot. Right. It is a different feel yeah. from what we have with like the Marvel films, certainly. Right. Or even the Nolan Batmans, where and, it's like yeah. everything is plot-based. Yeah. Everything is plot-based, but everything is very grounded in reality right. in the Nolan films. And this one is like, no, we're just going to be kind of fantastical. We're going right. to have a dude that's a penguin and a lady that's a cat. And like, yeah. there is some maybe mystical stuff going on. Yeah. Maybe not. We don't have to explain it. Right. I don't need to know whether or not the Cobblepots had a nuclear reactor next to their mansion. Right. Right. There yeah. is just. This... For some reason, Penguin is just always spitting out green bile. <laughs> right. Don't don't need to know more about it. It's just he's a vibe. Just, he's just kind of a strange dude. Yeah. And uh, she's apparently uh, can't die or she gets brought back to life by cats. Yeah. And uh, so she goes home and destroys her entire apartment. For some reason, has one can of black spray paint in her pink apartment. That's right. And, and one, one black shiny raincoat. That's right. One black latex raincoat, which is completely out of character for everything she's worn up to this point. But it was stuffed in the back of her closet. So maybe it was just, you know. Yeah. Just just for a rainy day. <laughs> All right. All right. <laughs> and she makes herself some really like uh, fantastic gloves. And I have to say, they really don't get into how difficult it is to sew rubber and also <laughs> make gloves those yeah. are very difficult things to do right you know good on her for her crafting skills yeah. also it was nice that the um costume did have like, those big stitches so it did look like makeshift it wasn't like she yeah. made a perfectly put together i mean it was very nicely fitting obviously but it wasn't like oh the seams are hard to see it's like no they look like distressed you know? Right, right. I I do uh, really appreciate the Tim Burton stylizing of, of all of this, both mm -hmm. with the Penguin and with Catwoman, where they're based off of these sort of drawings that if you look in, in you know, if you look in, you can see and find these on the internet. I guess Danny DeVito, his character, in order to start developing it, Tim Burton gave him a little like illustration of baby Penguin. Oh, okay. This like sad little round baby penguin character that just has like little like flipper like pointy flipper hands and pointy flipper feet huh. who's just been like abandoned by his parents and he gave that to Danny DeVito and that was sort of the start in his mind of this character Oswald Cobblepot. Interesting and it's so it's funny because every not every other version but the earlier versions of the penguin had really just been like a guy who's like a socialite right. who's a little <laughs> bit portly but he has a monocle and a top hat and he like is is the the crime lord of gotham and right. he like drives a long car <laughs> and and he's called the penguin because he wears tuxedos all the time and that's what tim burton actually said that he was not super thrilled about the penguin when he was growing up he really thought it was kind of a throwaway villain because he's just this dude that's in a top hat right There's not really anything particularly interesting or scary or or evil about him yeah yeah that's true and then you also have the illustrations the early illustrations by tim burton of Catwoman that look very much like a 
broken, overstuffed doll. Yeah. Kind of like, is it Sally? Sally, yeah. I was Very... just going to say this. Even the stitching on mm-hmm. the suit reminds me a lot of Sally's stitching from Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah, so you can see that some of the those early manifestations of that character, I think, in the illustration that you have there and then how it manifests in the yeah. in the in the uh, costume itself. Yeah, no, I thought that, that, that all the, like, uh, obviously both your Batman uh, before this and Batman Returns, the costume design mm-hmm. and the production design are incredible, especially compared to a lot of the, like, modern superhero movies, which are all CG, right. just, like, computer-generated nonsense. And this is, like, oh, we actually have this big German expressionism, like, paintings and stuff. Mm-hmm. We have these big statues we created outside this giant Christmas tree. Like, very cool stuff. Yeah, I was watching this and thinking to myself, oh, Forrest probably loves this because they do shy away so much from the the digital yeah. effects and it really is for the most part practical. Yep. Um this the cat suit is a really great example of that. They had so I guess they had like more than 60 latex cat suits. Wow. And uh they were a thousand dollars a piece and there were all sorts of different parts to have to put on. Yeah. Um the boots, the corset, the mask, claws, um, and then they would put this latex thing on. She had to have talcum powder on her entire I'm body. Sure, yeah. And then they would put it on I guess somehow like vacuum seal it yeah. and then paint it with silicone so that it would look shiny. Shine, yeah, yeah. And she could only wear it for a limited amount of time because her skin couldn't breathe right. in it and she would start to get faint and pass out. Whew. And I know a lot of the stuff that she, that is done in the movie, I don't know about the backflips and stuff, but mm-hmm. like the whip work, she actually did a lot of that. Oh, yeah. 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 So she didn't do any of the acrobatics, but she did prepare... By doing all sorts of kickboxing and and did work with a master whip uh, mm-hmm. artist or a teacher, sure, yeah. basically. Um, Devo. That's right. Crack that whip. Got <laughs> um, hey, back. Sorry. And right. I guess she trained with him for for like six months or something like that. I mean, it was um, for for quite a long time. But man, was it worth it? That one shot where she's in the department store. Yeah, with the the foreheads and the mannequins. They yeah. They really don't do justice to how amazing she is with that whip with the how close up that shot is because you you just you can't see that she's actually doing that yeah you know well yeah they want it all in one take i remember reading that and so it's like it's really impressive that she hits four in a row (laughs) with that at that range with that yeah and there apparently was a huge competition or you know there was there were a lot of people vying for this role originally annette benning was supposed yeah. to play the Catwoman, yeah, and but she got pregnant, which yep. you know the 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 feminist feminist in me wants to say, well, you know, you, even if you're pregnant, you can do it. But I could not imagine being in that suit, right? If you're gonna pass out from the yeah the skin asphyxiation or whatever, right? Exactly. And so lots of different people, I guess, were being considered: Raquel Welsh, Jennifer Jason Lee, Madonna, Ellen Barkin, Bridget Fonda, Cher, Lorraine Bracco. That's a lot of Susan Sarandon. It's a lot of all over the place. Yeah, like none of them really have like a very sort of similar look. Annette Benning, I if you look at like younger photos of her, you sure. actually can see the similarities between her face structure and Michelle Pfeiffer. So sure. it does make sense. Um, have you ever heard of this person named Sean Young? Yeah, yeah. She broke into the Warner Brothers lot dressed as Catwoman or something like that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. She she was very much wanting to be Catwoman. I, apparently, she was originally cast as Vicki Vale. Oh. And... In the first Batman, and uh, she she really wanted this part, and uh, so yeah, she broke onto the lot and uh, 
still didn't get the part. Yeah, of course. Well, yeah, that's not a good way to get cast. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, the opening of this movie, I, I really, really did appreciate how much they got done Yeah, in just such a short amount of time. Sure. The one thing I, here's the question I have. Yeah. Do you think this is a Batman movie? What kind of movie do you think it is? It's a Catwoman and Penguin movie. Right. Like, yes. The first 40 minutes of this film, I think Batman has one line. He's really hardly in it. He's barely there. He's he's there for the fight scene where he meets Selena Kyle, but mm-hmm. doesn't say a word. Mm-hmm. And then he's just absent for like 30 minutes after that, where it's dealing with Max Shrek and the Penguin and Selena Kyle and Max Shrek and all that. And then the Penguin goes on TV mm-hmm. and we cut to Batman or Bruce Wayne. He's like, oh, hope he finds his parents. And then that's it again. Like, that's it. The line that he has in the movie is like, he's done for another 10 minutes and then he's finally back. Yeah, it, it's interesting. That was a criticism that Tim Burton got is that it basically was not, you know, Batman was not really in it. Oh, I don't care. Nearly that, as yeah. much. Um, no, I mean, I, I think that it's 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 definitely interesting, but we already know about Batman. What, are right. we going to do the scene with the broken pearls again? Right, right. I know, but I think that's that's my question is like, the protagonists of this story are like the, the characters who change in the story are Penguin and Catwoman, right? Not Batman. Yeah, that's so, right. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you wouldn't call this the bird and the cat or whatever, but you know, it's it's not. Uh, <laughs> it's just narratively, it is very interesting that it was written to just focus the entire first act only on those two characters for the most part. I mean, the entire first act, but then, I mean, even really like later in the film, you don't see that much of Batman or yeah. Bruce Wayne. It's, uh, it's, it's interesting going back and watching this. I, I got the feeling that that Michael Keaton really sort of only deigned to play mm-hmm. Batman. This was such a different time yeah. compared to now where the only big movies are superhero films. Right, right. right. And and that it's not that it's necessarily prestige, but it is a lot more normalized to play superhero characters if you're a serious actor yeah if you're a serious actor right like you can play black widow and then you can go be in a movie with kylo ren where you're yelling at each other about divorce what oh oh marriage story yeah sorry i was like she was not in the star wars movie (laughs) (laughs) got it right Kylo Ren and Black Widow can get together and, and have a, a a divorce movie right. that gets a lot of awards or whatever. And it's very, it's very much something that is normalized today. Whereas yeah. I think that it was a lot more novel at this point. And you get the feeling from Michael Keaton that he doesn't really consider it acting sure. in, in a way like yeah. when he's talking about this. Yeah. Um, and and apparently he did say later um maybe a few years ago on a mark maron podcast interview that he's never actually watched the entire batman returns oh interesting all in like one sitting huh i yeah i I hear a lot of people who have who are actors who say they haven't done that like they haven't watched a film that they are well known for and it's largely i think because you do the work and then you move on to the next thing and it's like oh do i go back and see, see this thing or am i just pushing forward and a lot of actors are just like no it's just on to the next thing yeah, it's it's just interesting. It's interesting to hear that. And then with Tim Burton, he's such an interesting dude as well. I don't really know a ton about him, mm-hmm. um, but you know, he's he just feels like that quintessential, like kind of wacky artist, right? Who has these incredible, weird visions of what he wants to do that For are sure. 
that are only able to exist inside his mind. Yeah. You know, and he, and that, that he brings to life. Yeah. He all, he almost did a Superman movie. I don't know if you knew that. No. Yeah. With Nicolas Cage as Superman. No. Yeah. That sounds terrible. (laughs) It was called Superman Lives. And there is a documentary about it called The Death of Superman Lives, which is worth the watch. It's, I would say that the documentary is probably a better movie than Superman Lives would have been had it existed. Yeah. Yeah. That, that sounds right. Isn't there something with Nicolas Cage and Kal-El or something? Did he name his son Kal-El? Yes, that's correct. Okay. Sure did. Just He's a big, off big of, Superman fan. Yeah. Based off a role that he never got. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. <laughs> I think he also just loves Superman as a, yeah. as a character, which is strange because I'm not a huge fan. And in fact, I asked Cassius the other day, we were walking to the, the playground and he loves superheroes, right? Mm-hmm. He knows the Avengers, he knows um, Batman. And I was like, Buddy, do you know what? Do you know anything about Superman? He's like, no. I'm like, yeah, that's that's probably fair. Yeah, I mean, we we are not going to put it on. I don't know where he would hear about it. Right. The other thing I'll, I'll notice about the opening part, and this continues through the movie, but the first time we see Bruce Wayne is when they put up the bat signal for the opening fight that's happening. Right. And not only is it a bat signal that goes into the sky, it apparently reflects off of a bunch of mirrors he has set up right. around his house with the bat emblem on it that casts it into his living room or wherever he's sitting, right? Mm-hmm. And I just wonder, like, do people come visit him at his house? And it's like, hey, Bruce, really lovely place. Quick question. Why does everything have the Batman logo on it? Like, is he not trying to hide this anymore? He has a CD player with the bat symbol on it. Like, I think it's the CD player is only in the bat cave, though. But why put a sig- symbol on it? Well, you know, it's uh, you got to do something with that with that Bruce Wayne cash. I guess more money than necessary. He just got like a box of stickers. <laughs> and went around the bat cave putting them all over the place. Yeah, but this this is how it ties into our news story, right? It's like Bruce Wayne has nothing but money and time. That's and right. So he's like I'm going to go solve these like crimes. Cash to burn. Yeah. And where are the police in Gotham? Like we see Commissioner Gordon like sitting on a a dais I think at some point, right? Next to the like podium. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of it. The cops like don't show up to stop the bad guys. I mean, this is the Penguin's entire political campaign platform, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Oswald means order, I think is what his campaign said. Yeah, seems like he's not wrong. But he's the one causing the disorder. <laughs> it's kind of like how the police cause crime and then demand higher budgets to stop it. So actually, maybe this is a good point to jump in with a little bit more on our news story, right? So the thing that sort of drove me a little bit crazy from the article is the subheadline, which is when the police can't afford to solve cold cases using DNA databases, deep-pocketed donors can. Okay, (laughs) so let's back up just to the very first part of this sentence. Right. When the police can't afford. Stop. Right. What does that mean? (laughs) What are the police actually doing with the billions of dollars we give them every year, their, their budgets? For instance... What do you think the U.S. collectively spends on policing in a given year? Oh, God. Well, it's something insanely huge. I am terrible with comprehending large numbers. Sure. But I'm, I mean, I know that L.A.'s budget itself is is billions. Yes. And the same for New York City, mm-hmm. um, which is even more, I believe. New York, uh, NYPD is the highest- uh, budgeted police department in the country. Probably, I would assume, in the world then. Yes, also. by, by, by and large, yeah. By, uh, yes. by the, a lot. The amount of money that goes into the New York Police Department every year is larger than the entire Ukrainian army. Yes. So 
Yes. So give give me a give me a number. Oh, and choose a gosh. big one. I'm gonna say um, for all of America, 120 billion dollars. That's a really good guess. Yeah. So it is between 100 and 150 billion dollars uh, every wow. year. Yes. Wow. That was so, a good guess. Good for me. Yeah, nice work. <laughs> uh, and that's just on policing. There's another 80, $80 billion on incarceration. The entire criminal justice system is about $300 billion every year. So we're talking huge numbers. We're talking mm-hmm. more than the GDP of many countries. Right. We're talking more than the entire military spending of like China and India and Pakistan and Israel combined. Like, well, it's a good thing that we have no crime in America now because yeah, of we, that. We've certainly solved the problem, right? right? And not only that, to your point, since the 1970s, largely, roughly, crime has been going down, especially mm-hmm. violent crime. Mm-hmm. But the budgets for police officers and police departments have been going up. Mm-hmm. And I do want to take a minute. It is reasonable to just take a minute to remember people like George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Atiana Jefferson, Botham Jean, Fernando Castile, Tamir Rice, Eric Garner, Freddie Gray, and so many others. Mm-hmm. Their deaths are largely the responsibility of the police forces and the over-policing of specific communities, predominantly black communities. Right. So just want to make sure we say that before we get into what are larger statistics that may obscure that fact. Right. But the question is, what are the police doing to identify these missing people? What are the police doing to solve cold cases? We heard about the FBI's investigation into the Golden State Killer, but If there are supposedly cash-strapped police organizations around the country unable to investigate missing persons using DNA evidence, what the hell are they doing? (laughs) Oh, aren't they being the crossing guards outside of the elementary school up the street from us? So they certainly are doing that, yes. They are also spending a lot of money on, surprise, surprise, themselves. Tanks. (laughs) You're welcome. So they are spending... (laughs) They are spending 97% of police budgets on salaries, pensions, and benefits. Cool. This is according to something called the American Action Forum. Not only that, overall police funding has grown by 254% between 1991, just before this movie came out, and 2019. Mm -hmm. So we're actually seeing a massive investment in police over the course of a 20-year period. That has been going only to adding new police officers. Mm -hmm. It's not adding to the tactics that they can use to solve crimes. Murder rate clearances are still incredibly low. It's not adding what they can do to prevent crime because as we know, police are responsive and not proactive. They do not prevent crime. Mm -hmm. And it's not going to anything that effectively mitigating violent crime or nonviolent crime. So what could they be doing with all of this money? You ask. I mean, aren't they just like buying more tactical gear? So they're doing that, but a lot of that's actually given by the federal government. So they're (sighs) not even necessarily buying it. Let's just take New York City, for example. In 2017, New York City had a police force spending of $4.89 billion. In 2020, that more than doubled to $10.9 billion in spending in one year for one city. Mm -hmm. Rather than paying lofty salaries, they could take just 6% of that budget and dedicate it towards DNA matching for the 14,000 unidentified people cataloged in a database maintained by the Justice Department called NAMUS, Mm -hmm. N-A-M-U-S. It basically describes where bodies are found, its conditions, any clothing or accessories, and sometimes has access to DNA evidence. Mm -hmm. It would only take 6% of one year's budget for the New York Police Department 
to invest in identifying these unidentified people. Mm -hmm. But no, of course we have to spend it on more cops on the street doing nothing. Well, isn't a lot of like a lot of the money that's also spent just overtime for officers who... Yes. So I can give you a great example of that. There is a police officer by the name of Tom Donnelly, Mm -hmm. who retired as a Ramapo school safety officer in August Mm -hmm. and earned in one year, $442,000. Cool. Yeah. Basically that breaks down into a base salary of $151,000, which is like fairly close to like a tech salary in yeah. New York. Like that's which is very fine, fine, literally as a base salary. Yeah. But it rocketed up to $441,968 because he had a vacation time that he unused right before his retirement, as well as overtime. There are also other police officers in New York in what is called the Village of Kings Point in Nassau County. That had 20 police officers averaging $220,000. So the police who like to sort of hold themselves up as this blue collar, mm-hmm. you know, working class sort of thing. It is absolutely not that way for the top earners in police departments. Right. And it is one of the reasons why New York City's police department is so expensive. Right. It's not that they're seeing better results. They have a bunch of cops around doing things like moving homeless people out of encampments. Or just standing around yeah. subway stations. Or standing around subway stations, bothering black people in Times Square, whatever it is that they're doing. Mm-hmm. And by the way, just yesterday, there was a shooting in New York in the subway. The person who perpetrated the crime got away. And today, the NYPD was moving homeless encampments out of parks. So what are you really spending your money on? Are you keeping people safe? Are you doing anything to stop well, these things from happening? police officers in the station, I think. And all the stations have cameras? Right. Nothing. Anyway, there is a use case for this this money mm-hmm. that doesn't necessarily go to more policing, but goes to more effective usage right. of the tools that could be acted on by police. Mm-hmm. So as I mentioned, in 2017, New York was almost $5 billion, Now it's over 10 In 2017, Los Angeles was $1.5 billion, Chicago was $1.5 billion, Houston was $900 million, et cetera. And all of these take up over 25% of the general fund expenditure of these cities. In places like Oakland, California, it's over 40% of the expenses of the city Mm -hmm. go to the police force. Yeah. It's ridiculous. So I just wanted to bring that up. Like the case is basically that we should not need private millionaires and billionaires to fund the search for missing persons, to Mm -hmm. fund this DNA genealogical matching. Right. It should be something provided by these supposedly cast-strapped police forces, which you could do if you would fire, like, three cops. That's it. <laughs> right. Right. I think that that is a, a really good point. And, and again, so you've been walking around very angry. Yes. Um, it's your turn this week. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and by the way, like, my mom was a former police officer in Charlotte, North Carolina. Right. Uh, she served there for seven years. She's been in law enforcement or was in law enforcement for 30 years before she retired the state of North Carolina. And I don't have anything against, like a lot of her friends were police officers. I don't have anything against people choosing to be police officers because they believe they can do the right thing. Mm -hmm. What I am saying is that the systems that are put in place to structure how police officers do their activities and what those activities can be with the money allocated for them Mm -hmm. is inherently and structurally flawed. Right. And we have too many cops. Right. And the incentive structures that you have. And this is not just because we got pulled over the other day. (laughs) Right. No, I mean, I, I think that I, I think that that's a really good point. And 
it is a weird thing to say that we have all these people who are donating millions of dollars to solve these murders when we already spend so much money on the police. Yeah. It's like, that's their, that's their job is to solve the murders. Right. Not to pull me over for having a tag that was expired by two months so that you can make me late to an event that I'm going to like, just send me a thing in the mail and I will get my car registered. Sorry. (laughs) Personal aside, a waste of everyone's time. Well, this is why you should vote Oswald Cobblepot. No, he is bad. (laughs) Don't trick me. (laughs) He wants to, he wants to reform the police. He does not. I don't think he does. Does he? Is that part of his thing? No, I don't know. I think he, I think he, he just, just wanted to stop the bat. He just wants the re- the police to have more of a presence, I think. Okay. It, that's his, his platform, is yeah. it? Yeah. So. so, yeah, getting back to where we are, where we left off in the movie before I started getting angry. Uh-huh. So we're now entering, I assume, Act 2. Mm-hmm. We can go through this relatively quickly. We now have Selena Kyle, who has, you know turned into Catwoman, or at least made that transformation at home. She goes back to the offices at Shrek Industry, and lo and behold, Max Shrek is very surprised to see her there. Oh, Um, before we go that far, there was one thing that uh, I appreciated. mm -hmm. She had a big neon light in her house that said, hello there. Mm -hmm. But when she turned into Catwoman, what did it say? Hell here. Hell here. That's right. That was one of those things that that really stuck in my mind as a young young person who watched it watched that and thought it was so clever so clever yeah absolutely the so the the christopher walken character by the way um they were considering somebody the producers really wanted somebody else to play um max shrek oh really david bowie oh i could see that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then the the character max shrek is named after an actor named max shrek who played nosferatu oh yeah that's right yeah Mm -hmm. makes sense hey why would you not want me (laughs) To be Max Shrek, I'm perfect for the role. I really, really didn't think we were going to make it out of this episode without you doing it, Christopher Walken. It's not an option. (laughs) Um, And then in early versions of the script, Max Shrek was the written as the golden boy of the Cobblepot family. Oh, he was like a long lost brother, which I could see like early. Ver- I could that you makes could a see lot that of play sense. in a little bit. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. They decided to to move away from that. In terms of the writer, so the writer is Daniel Waters, who worked on Heather's. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah, and I guess Burton saw his work on Heather's and really liked it, and he brought him on to potentially do a sequel to Beetlejuice. Oh, that I which guess- I think they're still working on. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. And then he ended up not. So when Burton came on to Batman Returns, he really did not care for the script that had been written as it had been written by a person named Sam Ham. What? <laughs> Does he like green eggs and ham? Um, well, it's it's possible. Uh, <laughs> I don't think he wrote that book, but um, he wrote instead about a different cat. OK. Yep. that's right. Mm hmm. But no, Burton didn't really care for the the way that the script was written. And he brought in Waters to okay. to take it um, in a different direction. I think originally they had Catwoman as being a very classic, stereotypical, like sexy gotcha. uh, character. And so they wanted to make that darker, obviously very much sure. in line with just Tim Burton in general. Right. And they also ended up changing the Penguin so that it was a little bit less cartoonish. Okay. Um, that was less cartoonish? 
Yeah. The man is eating raw fish walking downstairs to a meeting. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> no, I mean, I think that they, they ended up wanting to to change the storyline for the penguin and, and to make it reflect more of the villains that we have in our own daily lives. Okay. Which is... Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, which is, which is um, the politicians and stuff like right, that. Right, right, right. Yeah. So speaking of, yeah. that brings us to a game. Oh, good. Game time. That's right. All right. So the inspiration for the villains and storylines in Batman Returns are based on actual villains in our lives. But let's face it, there have also been some pretty ridiculous villains in the Batman canon as well. Yes. So this is a test of whether you can tell the difference between actual Batman villains or villains in our own lives or random villains that we just made up. Okay. All right. You ready to start? Yes. Always. Okay. Calendar Man only commits crimes on holidays. Real. Uh, in Batman, I mean. It's, it's a that Batman is a villain. real. Yeah. Did you know that? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So that was from uh, a first period in Detectives Comics uh, in 1959. Yep. <laughs> Birthday Boy. Uh, a serial killer who stalks young women and whose costume is basically a burlap sack over his head and a party hat. That is made up. That is a real Batman villain. Really? Mm-hmm. Not a fan of Birthday Boy. <laughs> Uh, Pedant Man, a short villain in a bug costume who loves correcting people and always starts his sentences with, well, actually. You made that up. (laughs) (laughs) That is a villain that you experience (laughs) on the internet, but. Uh, Onomatopoeia, a serial killer who only speaks in onomatopoeias like click, pow, and thud. That is a real Batman villain. That's right. Yes. That was created by Kevin Smith. Yep. You know this too? I did. You know too much about Batman. I, I liked Batman growing up. All right, here we go. I Guy, a former optometrist who wants to bring down the government because he believes people should be responsible for themselves. That is a, a real life villain. Going with real life villain? Yeah. As Rand Paul. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> the Lone Scum, the heir to an emerald mine who is inventing brain implant chips and planning to rule outer space that is elon musk that's right and also lone scum is an anagram of elon musk there you go yeah hey you're a villain elon (laughs) see me you're a villain you know it we know it flamingo a serial killer who wears pink rides a motorcycle uses a whip and eats people's faces uh batman villain you know that one too yes (sighs) (laughs) from batman 666 in 2007 yeah all right Barbell, a psychotic workout addict and fitness nut who challenges enemies to pull up competitions and tries to overthrow the government. That is Alex Jones? Marjorie Taylor. <laughs> okay. <Green. yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> like, I was like, real person, but there could be a few. <laughs> there's a, there, yeah, there's definitely quite a few that that could be. All right. Condiment King, villain who commits crimes armed with a gun that shoots things like ketchup and mustard while making condiment related puns. I think that's a Batman villain. That is a Batman yeah. villain from the animated series. Okay. In 1994. That's uh, Yeah, I was like, I feel like I've heard of that one somewhere, but I don't remember exactly what, <laughs> what it was from, but yeah. All right. Uh, the Viceroy. He has a bionic heart and ran the world using a shadow government, tortured his enemies, was an international arms dealer, and once shot a lackey in the face. That's Dick Cheney. That is Dick Cheney. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't have gotten there unless you if you hadn't done the, the uh, shot in the, the face. face. Yeah. Ah. 
I was like, I'm, I'm right in the line. You limit your possibilities <laughs> quite a bit when you go with a shot someone in the face. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's such a villain. He's a bad guy. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, I think you got them literally all correct. No, I missed one. I missed birthday boy, but yeah. Great. But yeah, look at me knowing Batman. Hooray. And real life villains. Too. Well, yes, they haunt me every day. That's right. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Getting back to the film then, we are seeing the penguin running for office and then we see Catwoman teaming up with the penguin against Batman. Yes. And they are scheme to kidnap the ice princess yeah by the way yeah i was as a child Mm -hmm. so very confused that the penguin could show up to a meeting where he was introduced to everyone who was going to be helping him run for office eating a raw fish Mm -hmm. walk down the stairs proceed to bite someone in the nose with blood streaming down his face Mm -hmm. and still continue to have support for running for mayor from all the people who watched it happen. And then we had Donald Trump. And now everything's in play. That's true. Like Donald Trump could literally bite someone's nose off tomorrow and he wouldn't lose one of his voters. On Fifth Avenue. On Fifth Avenue, exactly. That's that's what he said. That's the classic saying. I could that, bite a nose off on Fifth Avenue. <laughs> not and, lose any voters. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, no, I mean, it's, it's true. I think that as I was watching this, you really have, we have really passed to the point of um, irony. The world is so much more wild than it was in 1994. <laughs> That's right. It seems as though like Trump is the penguin wrapped in like the Max Shrek suit. Mm-hmm. The difference being that in this movie, Shrek is a real billionaire, not a fake one. But other than that, it's like the the sort of demonic like undertones of the penguin, everything from like the violence to like the weird like sexual depravity that he shows right uh is just like wrapped up in the the cloak of wealth that shrek presents so anyway that that was a thing that i had not picked up on until the last time we watched it so (laughs) there you go yeah and and so we see catwoman and uh and the penguin teaming up penguins having a rally and batman sort of plays uh something to get everybody to to turn against the penguin yeah so i think it was uh the penguins hench folk Mm-hmm. had taken the Batmobile and hijacked it. That's right. And so then the penguin- Lo-jacked is, it. And then the penguin was sitting inside of a fake Batmobile. Inside which, of a news truck? Inside of a news truck. I don't get it, but I loved it. It was hilarious. Mm-hmm. And he was driving uh, that fake Batmobile, which was controlling the real Batmobile, which he was trying to drive through people to make Batman look like he was a bad guy. Basically, the whole thing was just to set Batman up as being a villain. That's right. Set Batman up, but then he gets away- and then he uses the audio of the yeah. penguin talking. He he hits the record button, uses the audio, and then plays it while the penguin is having some kind of a political rally. Yeah. And everybody turns against him and starts throwing vegetables. For some reason, they all had fruits and veggies on hand. <laughs> and I guess the penguin actually has a comment in the script where yeah. he says, like, somebody's always got to bring eggs and tomatoes to a rally. Right, yeah. Yeah, it's something like that. <laughs> I guess that's a, how rallies go in Gotham City. I don't know. Yeah. Do you think... Mm-hmm. that when we show this movie to our kids at some point when they're somewhere between 8 and 12 years old they're going to understand what Bruce Wayne or Batman was doing when he put the CD into the car to record the penguin's voice and then <laughs> played it on a CD player we'll have to explain it 
for yeah. sure as another sign where, of the cdr you understand <laughs> now look you could have the cdr plus or the plus minus it doesn't matter but you can't have just the minus Cassius falls asleep listening to us speak. <laughs> Why am I that old when I'm explaining it to him? I don't know. Okay. This is only eight years from, or really four years from now. <laughs> <laughs> I feel that old already, so it's okay. But another example of the the times of uh, that this was shot in, yeah. I guess that when Danny DeVito would go to get his makeup done, it was like between two and three hours every morning that Jeez. he was just sitting there having makeup put on him. And he he talks in interviews about how he would just bring his laser discs with him and watch movies on Laserdisc for those hours while he was getting the makeup put on. I love that. I love that idea of just Danny DeVito walking in. Hey, everybody. <laughs> just have like five or six Laserdiscs. He's like, right. today we're watching Do the Right Thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, Danny DeVito, he's he's funny. I, I really love him. He should have um, won an Oscar for this performance. It's wild. He does such an amazing job. And I guess he is, I mean, he doesn't quite call it method acting, right. but he stays in character when he's in the makeup, right. essentially. Sure. So yeah. they put him in the makeup and he, I guess he was like very uncomfortable in it. And they would drive him to set in this sort of enclosed little buggy thing so that people couldn't really interact with him. And so he could really just stay Oswald Cobblepot yeah. and and be the character the whole time. He got super into it and and I guess Tim Burton loved how <laughs> into it he got. He was like eating raw fish. Ugh. DeVito loves grossing people out in like interviews. You can just see he's like, sure. oh, and I eat all the fish. And yeah. Uh, it's definitely a fantastic performance. And you can see that he, like as opposed to Keaton, you can see that he actually really loves and like sort of relishes yeah. this character that he's playing. And it's interesting because prior to this, like Danny DeVito had not been like a, a leading man, but he had been like a really successful movie star. So obviously he started on TV with Taxi, mm-hmm. but like he was in Twins with Schwarzenegger. He had a bunch of other roles that were like, hey, this is like Danny DeVito playing the the normal kind of dude in the, in the movie. Mm-hmm. And this is the first time he went full like, I'm an insane person. Right. And that carried over to like all of his Always Sunny in Philadelphia stuff. Uh, later, like later, yeah. but it's like he hadn't done the like I'm completely bananas until this movie, which I thought was fun. Yeah, he also didn't know that or he found out that they wanted him to play the part because he was on the set for the War of the Roses, oh, and yeah. Michael Douglas was like, "Hey, did you see this thing in the paper where they said that you're going to play the Penguin?" <laughs> and he was like, "Uh, nope." And I guess they didn't even approach him for like a year after that. But That's they hilarious. did want him to play the penguin. Yeah, they said that like the the list of people who can play like a short, like angry, nasty dude is like not a very tall list, you know. Or just I mean, yeah. obviously not a very tall list. And hey. right, and so they or Waters. He actually wrote the character for Devito. Interesting. Um, with Devito in mind. And apparently Danny Devito's good friend Jack Nicholson convinced him to take the role because of his own financial success playing the Joker. Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. Do you know about Jack Nicholson's like Batman money? I think you maybe mentioned it to me, but remind me. Yeah. So he got a percentage, I think. Like first of all, he loved playing the Joker. He thought mm-hmm. it was cool and like really exciting thing to play. But I guess he was like, also give me that money. Mm-hmm. So I think he took points off of the film. Yeah. And what that means is he just gets a percentage of revenue. And I think, I don't know exactly, but I think he got gross points, which means it's not like Hollywood accounting is going to take money from him. Mm -hmm. I think he just gets like a percentage of Batman money. And so he made like 
50 million dollars off of batman and batman itself grossed over 100 million in box office of course but it's yeah. like over the lifetime of that film he made right. insane amount of money he made that's that's wild and i guess it must have served as like a, a prototype for um for this film because uh, there were a lot of pay increases so yeah. michael keaton increased to like i think 11 million dollars yeah um, and then I know Michelle Pfeiffer got $3 million to play Catwoman, which was $2 million more than Annette Benning had originally been contracted to play. Wow, okay. And she also got a percentage of box office. Wow. As okay. well. I yeah. would be surprised to find out that DeVito did not also have something similar going yeah. on based off of his conversations with Nicholson. Yeah. And they don't do that anymore. <laughs> sure. Like, like they'll pay, you know, Robert Downey Jr., like... 20 mil or something or, or 30 mil, but they're not going to give you points. Like, Would you like to know how uh, Batman Returns did in theaters? Yeah. Uh, can I guess? Yeah. Do you have, you have lifetime box office? I mean, I have worldwide. Wor- okay. Okay. Um, I, I, I would say worldwide, it was probably 180, something like that. 266. Okay. All right. Do you, domestic, I imagine it was less than the first Batman, but probably still over a hundred. Um, 162.9. Wow. Okay. Um, and it was the highest opening weekend ever in the U.S. It opened July 19th, 1992. Opening weekend, Thursday night previews, it grossed $2 million, And then opening weekend, it got $45.69 million wow. on 2,644 theaters. Amazing. That That's surprising. I guess. Well, I mean, the, the first one was such a huge hit. But this is such a weird movie. <laughs> it is. It is. I mean, and the reception was very mixed. People yeah. were shocked and like kind of angry at points about how dark it was. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I imagine they brought their kids yeah. to see this movie. And like, I guess to finish up the plot, like once Penguin is sent back down to the sewers, mm-hmm. he wants to steal all the babies. <laughs> yeah. He tries to steal all the babies. Um, no, apparently like... There were kids that would like leave the theater because they were crying. Yeah. Or half the people loved it. A lot of people hated it. They said it was too dark. A lot of people hated it because they said it was too cartoony. Yeah, so sure, sure. It's both of those things, I guess. But it still um, made that money. It's, yeah. In terms of like reception, it, for Rotten Tomatoes, it got 80% fresh. Yeah. And it has an average rating of 6.73 out of 10. Okay. Um, and then on Cinema Score, it has a B. And then on Metascore, it has a 63. Okay. Yeah. But and, I, I would take this over like Spider-Man No Way Home 10 times out of 10. Like this was actually fun. <laughs> <laughs> I like No Way Home. I mean, we're not going to get into oh, that. Yeah. But um, I, you know, I, I think that this, I think that Batman Returns is, is fantastic. This is my favorite of the, the, the two. Yeah. Of, of the two Tim Burton's. Interesting. Um, And then I also just really do like, I, I, I like the Nolan Batmans yeah. that that take it into like a more reality, like what if this was real? Sure. But I really, I really appreciate the fun of these films that don't take themselves too serious and right. are more fantastical, and that that don't have to be real and are not bound by reality and right. how like dark that is in that particular way. Yeah, I think the Nolan ones are interesting because Batman Begins is. And is is kind of more cartoony. Mm-hmm. Like the the Gotham they construct there is not a real city. Mm-hmm. Whereas like in Dark Knight, it's just Chicago. And mm-hmm. then in Dark Knight Rises, it continues to be Chicago. And like it's not, it's is much less cartoony. Um and they're trying to come up with real versions of Catwoman and Bane and Thali Al Ghul and stuff like that. So whereas Burton's 
goes off the wall <laughs> between two or one and two. So here's what I'll bring up from my experience watching this when I was a kid. Okay. So I'm pretty sure we saw it in theaters. Mm-hmm. If not, definitely saw it on VHS several times. The reason I think this was probably the more seminal Batman film for me than the original was because of two things. Mm-hmm. There was a Batman Returns board game that oh. I had as a kid, okay. which is a 3D board game. It actually has a little city that you put up on top of a sewer. <laughs> so it like stands up. Um, okay. And then there was also the... You remember in the scene where the Batmobile splits apart and it shoots yeah. off the sides and turns into like a little narrow motorcycle you thing. You got very excited I Love that. Part. They had a toy that did that and it was my favorite toy growing up, but it broke. Uh-huh. And so I took it back to Target. Yeah, but or, then you just put it back together. Well, no, unfortunately, the, the, the latch that would keep it together uh. kept letting it pop off. And so I took it back to, I think, Kmart or Target where we got it from. And my dad was like, well, look, they can either replace it or you can just have that money and get some other stuff with the money. And so I ended up getting the bat boat, which he uses mm-hmm. very briefly at the end of the movie okay. and like some penguin machine or whatever. And both of those sucked. They were terrible toys yeah. and didn't do anything I wanted to do. And I miss having that Batmobile that exploded apart and had the little motorcycle that came out. So I made a bad choice and it has stuck with me oh. to this moment in my life. Sorry to hear that, it's darling. Okay. It's fine. I'm, I'm going to go eBay it later and see if I can find it. <laughs> well, actually, so you were sort of wrapping up the plot, but just as a, to put a to put a pin on it, Batman gets the people to turn on Penguin. Shrek then dumps the Penguin after he's like lost the appeal with the people. Yep. And then Penguin and the Red Triangle Gang steal all the firstborn sons in the city, but Batman stops that plot. In a very mm-hmm. anticlimactic way. Very quick. It's like off screen. It's yeah. just like, oh, they're Batman like, stopped us. Penguin's like, ah! like, what? I think that there's a lot of stuff that just didn't happen that was maybe cut out. Like yeah. that probably was what cut out. And then whatever happened to Catwoman yes. before her final scene where she showed up looking completely jacked up. Yeah. So like she got beat up or something, but they cut that out because yeah. she was fine the last time we see her. Then she shows up in the sewer and like her hair's all messed up and like her costume's ripped. And I said to you, I was like, what? Wait, what happened to her? Yeah. And, and we went like, back and, and looked and I couldn't find anything. Yeah. Um, so maybe, maybe we missed it. Who knows? But. Penguin decides then that in, since he can't go through with his stealing all the firstborn sons, that he's just going to bomb the city using his penguins. And then Alfred jams the signal. Batman and the penguin fight. Shrek escapes. And then Catwoman wants to get revenge on him. But Batman tries to stop her. She kills Shrek with a, a taser. Stun, taser. Yeah. And then she disappears. And then Batman, sorry, the penguin reemerges, tries to shoot Batman. But then he dies from sewage and the little penguin funeral. Yep. The little penguins move him into the water. And I asked you, how did they do the penguins that were walking him around? Because I assumed it had to be little people in costumes. Yeah, almost certainly. It was little people in costumes. I did look up the penguins because I was just curious generally. And and in terms of what they use on the penguins, they, they did use a mix of actual birds, yeah. animatronic birds, okay, yep. and people in suits. Okay. Um, all of the bats were computer generated because yeah. I guess it was decided that directing bats would not be a very um, good thing to try and do sure. on set. But they did have 12 king penguins and 30 African penguins that were like sh- brought in from the Antarctic. Wow. Um, they kept the lot completely cooled down to like 30 degrees so that you could like actually see the, the, breath, the frost yeah. and the breath, but also to keep the penguins comfortable. Yeah. Um, PETA was not happy. Duh. And especially when they found out that there were going to be bombs strapped to the penguins. <laughs> but 
I mean, they're like ridiculous bobs. <laughs> well, and also, PETA is not known for being a happy group of people. So. Sure. They they were definitely not happy, but apparently the penguins were treated like kings. Like king penguins. That's right. Hey. Um, and they had um, their own swimming pool. They had fresh fish brought in from the docks every morning. Unlimited fish. I mean, they were, they were treated very kindly. Yeah. Apparently, Good. while they were there. We close... With the bat signal up above in the yeah. sky and yeah. Catwoman stands up into, yeah, into yeah. frame and looks at it. Looks at it and then that's it. Close out with the Batman theme composed by Danny Elfman. That's right. Of Oingo Boingo fame. Okay. Yeah, he was in Oingo Boingo and then went on to be a composer. He, was, he works with Tim Burton on like everything he does. He's very good at crafting like the theme mm-hmm. for a character. He did the, the dun, 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 like. He did mm-hmm. that for Batman, and that continued on to the animated series, which is great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Although, apparently, because of the pressure of finishing the score for this film, along with um, them working together on The Nightmare Before Christmas, it really strained the relationship between Burton and Danny Elfman. Sure. Which is why he brought on Howard Shore instead for for his next film, Ed Wood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Elfman would eventually, I think, continue to work on, like, Big Fish and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Can't get rid of it. Maybe they're like, we just need a break. That's Yeah, that's right. That's fair. Yeah. Also, you work with Howard Shore once, and you're like, uh, Howard, I'm not so sure. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know. He's fine. <laughs> I um, don't know anything about Howard Shore. Yeah. So I think one of the things that Batman does interesting, when, when Batman is being interesting, mm-hmm. it speaks to how we consider vigilantism in crime fighting and, and solving criminal justice issues, right? The most recent Batman that mm-hmm. came out does a bit of that. It'll actually be out on HBO Max on the 18th. So okay, get ready for that, everybody. But the thing that I think ties it in with our news story mm-hmm. is like, what are the ethical considerations of taking private individuals' money mm-hmm. for the public implementation of justice? Okay. I know you already did a quiz. I also came up with a little bit of a game show. Oh. And so this is a quick one. Okay. This quiz is called, Is It White People? Okay. In these donations that are made uh-huh. to identify victims or find their perpetrators, mm-hmm. what is the race of the people who are most helped? Oh, well, definitely white people. You've won. Is it white people? <laughs> yeah, it's white people. I mean, it's like, it's. I'm, I'm sure that like the Gabby Petito stuff that was in the news is like the perfect example of that. Right. So there is already an existing bias towards white victims, right? right? So if there is a young white, specifically white women, if you're a white woman who is missing or the victim of crime, you get put on, what's her name? Nancy Grace. You, you end up on court TV, the whole kit mm-hmm. and caboodle, right? Uh, if you are not white, sorry, mm-hmm. you don't get that kind of attention. That bias could be compounded by the demographic makeup of those genealogy databases, Mm -hmm. right? So their composition skews heavily white, Mm -hmm. contrasted with the databases of state collections of DNA, such as the FBI's CODIS system. Mm -hmm. And that overrepresents black people who are more likely to have their DNA taken when they are arrested or even just stopped by police officers. Wow. Right. So if we're using DNA for black and brown people, it is typically with the intent to incarcerate. Mm -hmm. If we are trying to use it for white people, it is with the intent to help and provide justice for. In the justice system. In the justice system, correct. This leads to a larger question, which is, you know, what are the 
investigative priorities for these police officers going to be Mm -hmm. if it's determined by the people who can donate the most. So there's a law professor named Natalie Ram who's quoted in that article. She says that the largest share of cases so far tend to involve white female victims, as we've Mm -hmm. talked about. And then there is also the question of privacy. So for those who haven't taken DNA tests or uploaded their results to the public internet, you may still share DNA with other people who did, mm-hmm. right? So you may never commit a crime. Right. But how should you feel if your DNA was used to locate a distant relative who did commit a crime? What if this goes to other types of crime? Right. What if we just want to say, oh, we found some DNA evidence at a drug bust. And so now we're going to incarcerate the people that we can find identified at the drug bust. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's... Really, I mean, it's a slippery slope argument, I understand, but there is very little in my mind that would stop police departments hellbent on imprisoning black and brown people right. from doing something like that. Right. No, I mean, I could I could absolutely see and, and I could absolutely see that. And I think that this idea of a slippery slope argument, you obviously you want to be careful when you're making something like that, but it's not beyond the realm of like possibility at all. Yeah. I could absolutely see something like that happening. I still don't fully understand why they're allowed to use these databases to find the Golden State Killer. Like that seems like such a a poorly conceived plan because you could be finding this person only to have them be let go because you didn't go through legal channels in order to find them. Yeah, so the reason it was legal is because it was all public. Um, I think the thing that was the most spurious potentially is when he threw something away and they got it from his trash can to verify the DNA. It's like, is taking something out of a person's trash considered to be still their property Mm -hmm. or or because they discarded it? Is it not? They apparently went through several rounds of federal lawyers in the prosecution to ensure that that was acceptable. The problem then is how admissible is it if the people who are doing that investigation are individuals? Mm -hmm. So we spoke about Carla Davis The craziest part about this is that she actually went on to be a volunteer for a missing persons case. Mm -hmm. So basically, she acted as a private citizen helping out a police force Mm -hmm. do this genealogical investigation with her own money. And it's very strange that that's how they prioritize who gets help and who doesn't. I don't I don't think that that's necessarily how we want the system to work. Does she get to just go through and like look at the files and be like, I want to help with that one and that one and that one? That company, Othram, actually creates a listing of these kinds of cases. So they have a website called DNA Solves, and it tells the horrific and tragic stories of these missing persons. And they put these like catchy titles with it. So mm-hmm. like Christmas Tree Lady or angel baby to try and encourage like crowdfunding of these kinds of investigations and these kinds of DNA research. It's there's, there's another company called Parabon nano labs that has a similar site called justice drive, Mm -hmm. which tries to raise money for these things. It's absolutely bonkers that we spend so much money on policing in this country. And we're asking individuals to determine the investigative priorities of these police organizations and who they solve crimes for, and then asking them to foot the bill as private citizens. Right. No, that's that's wild. I mean, the other thing that that is interesting too is uh, it's just making me think about like it's tragic anytime somebody disappears, right? Yeah. And but you're absolutely right that that there is this overly represented focus on white women when 
I believe that there's a, a huge epidemic is the wrong word, right? But the the numbers for missing Native women mm. is is are through the roof. Wow. And and it's something like you know Native American women are murdered and sexually assaulted at rates as high as ten times the average American. Wow. In, in certain counties, and um, they're overwhelmingly committed by individuals outside the Native American yeah. communities. Yeah. And a lot of times these are crimes that are they're in remote areas. Yeah. And they also um, they sort of fall between jurisdictional cracks. And so it leaves these families without like ways for yeah. recourse, essentially. But yeah. but again, you know, it's absolutely the case that like we should try and solve as many murders as possible. But to your point, you know, why do we get to let these individuals yeah. decide who to focus on? Yeah. And I, I think that it's well, the the point I want to make on this is I don't particularly give a damn how many police officers there are in a given department right. if they're not solving the crimes. Right. And so we have too many police not solving enough violent crimes. And in fact, their very existence, their presence as individuals who are getting paid on the police force is taking away resources that are necessary to actually doing the crime solving. Right. It's like, stop with the bullshit Gestapo shields and mace and tasers and pepper spray. Stop trying to control the population, quote unquote, and just actually solve for things that are considered justice. Final note, I don't actually, <laughs> I don't actually really like it when people go to jail. I think jail's bad. Right. That being said, I'm not, as much as I'd like to be an abolitionist for prisons, I'm not the person to say that this 72-year-old Golden State Killer guy should not be in jail. Right. Like, I, I'm trying real hard, but I haven't circled that square yet. Mm -hmm. um, so as a, as a last note, screw that guy. He can kick rocks. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know how I feel about this, which is simply that, yes, we should have fewer prisons. Yes, we should have fewer people going to jail, but we shouldn't be starting with the group of people. We shouldn't be starting sending fewer people to jail with the group of people who are already least likely to go to jail Correct. in the first place. Yes. That's not the place to start. So right. as long as we have these terrible systems in place, we'll let the psychopathic murderer yeah. have the system work however it's supposed to work. Yeah. And then we can also work to change the larger system for all people. Yeah. 90% of crimes that people are convicted of are nonviolent. And so start there. Start with that 90% and that'll be a pretty good, pretty good start. Thanks, Ronald Reagan. What an asshole. Anyway, <laughs> good episode. We did it. I am, I'm still angry, but yes, <laughs> that's okay. Yeah. I think that's just the theme yeah. of the show, right? Final question. Do you recommend this film? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, watch the first one first because Jack Nicholson is great. Right. I, I still think I prefer the OG Batman to this one. Really? Having right. watched both recently, I'm yeah. like, man, Jack Nicholson is so fun. He's um, good. Yeah. And they have Jack Palance in that and he gets like electrocuted to death with like the little hand buzzer thing, mm -hmm. which I thought that was hilarious. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it, they're very cartoony. They're definitely not for children. I was much too young when I watched both of these. Right. But it's it's a fun set of movies. Burton uh, crushes it. And, um, you know, after he does Big Fish, don't watch anything else he does. <laughs> I think to to be fair about the age part of it, though, you know, a lot of the stuff that is like for, for people who are older. Yeah. If you're a kid, you're not going to get it. That's true. A lot of it's going to go right over your head. Yeah. I also recommend this film. It is my favorite of the two. Um, probably my favorite 
maybe my favorite Batman overall. Interesting. Um, definitely up there. I'd have to I'd have to think a little bit harder on like the Christopher Nolan Batmans. Yeah. It would not surprise me if your favorite Batman were the one that had the least Batman in it. That would not surprise me. <laughs> I I don't know. It's between this one and the one with Heath Ledger. Uh, yeah, Dark Knight. Yeah, the the two like second in the rebooted franchises, I guess. There right? you go. All right. Well, um, thank you so much for listening. Um, if you haven't done so already, please make sure to subscribe, rate, review. We really appreciate that. And then you can follow us on Twitter at the Crosscut, Instagram at the Crosscut Pod. Share us. Tell your friends about us. Yeah. Comment. Yeah. Have a happy Easter if you're listening to this uh, on the weekend it releases. And if you're not, then I hope you had a happy Easter at some point. Get those eggs. Get them eggs up. Get those eggs. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Bye, everybody. Oh, my God. Bye.